You're listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. In this episode, we talk to the inimitable Jenny Hedron Wills and touch on some of the themes that we feel go to the very core of our stories and our storytelling as adoptees consent and access, fact and fantasy, and the challenges of charting our way through the stories people expect and often even demand of us since we were children to aim for something that serves us, the nuanced narratives we deserve to have, which we are allowed to create and invent. We talk about Jenny's beautiful memoir, about building intimacy with the reader, and about writing in ways that retain that sense of feeling fragmented, which many of us experience. Jenny reminds us that we do indeed deserve self-preservation and consent, and shares a tip at the end, which we love, which relates to not just knowing your self-worth, but putting it into practice. Jenny Hedron-Wills is a multi-award-winning creative writer and scholar whose most notable contribution is the Writers' Trust non-fiction prize-winning book titled Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related, published by Penguin Random House Canada in 2019. She is a professor of English at the University of Winnipeg and is currently writing two novels. Nice to see you again, Jenny. Thanks for agreeing to come on our podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I'm excited. Thank you. Um, can we start by just asking you to briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Jenny Hitchin Wills, and I'm the author of Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related, a memoir. So... In your stunning said memoir, (laughs) Older Sister, uh, Not Necessarily Related, which was published in 2019, um, you write about returning to Korea and being reunited with your Korean family. So, you know, many people feel like they have kind of open access to our stories, you know, when they ask if we found our parents or returned to Korea, um, which can make some adoptees, you know, feel kind of protective of their own experiences. Um, so our first question is, you know, what made you decide to write about your own experiences of adoption? Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it, Ryan. Thank you so much. And and you're right that um, there seems to be this narrative of availability, narrative availability, and emotional availability that that feels like a heavy stone for a lot of adopted people to carry. And, and I think part of the impulse that many folks have to tell those stories is that we're asked from a young age. Um, we're, we're asked as youths about these things that are, frankly, in many cases, like quite inappropriate um, and, and can't be discussed discussed in a consensual way, and we're often asked by adults or people that we're meant to give answers to. And so, so it's right that you, you begin this conversation talking about um, privacy and boundaries and our impulse to tell. It's curious, my desire to write a memoir didn't actually come about because of any sense of you know, responsibility or desire to be public about these things. In fact, I had originally planned this project as a novel. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I was one of those writers that wanted to think 
through uh, deliberate fiction as a way to navigate some of the experiences I had had, but also some of the ideas that I was still working through. But um, it was in the publishing process, actually, that it was encouraged to be a memoir. So it didn't start out that way, definitely. And I'm a pretty shy person. So um, so it, it probably does surprise a few people that it, it went in that direction. Wow. Why do you think it was the publishers were encouraging you to, to go in that memoir direction? That's a really great question because I think from a Canadian perspective, um, there's some unique elements here. So, so in the U.S. where maybe Korean adoption stories are a little bit more ubiquitous or knowing Korean adoptees is more likely, um, it's a smaller population here. And from what I understand, there hadn't been anyone really publishing or talking about these things from a nonfiction life narrative perspective. So publishers were extremely excited about the possibility of having the firsthand own voices representation of Korean adoption or Asian adoption more broadly. Um, and I think that elements of marketing came mm -hmm. into the conversation that way. Um, so, so I think it's the, a combination of the rarity of meeting a Korean adoptee in Canada for my generation, let's say at least, alongside the fact that nonfiction and or creative nonfiction has um, a substantial market in my country. Mm. Um, the next question we have is it's a little bit of a sidestep. <laughs> we were wondering, I mean, I was wondering personally, because I'm always, um, I have found, I can just say that like after significant experiences in Korea, it's been, it's been kind of difficult to transition back to like life in Australia and, you know, process that stuff. So we we're wondering, yeah, how did you deal with returning to Canada after being in Korea or, and maybe what helped you process your Korea experience? Yeah, so I've been to Korea two times, and I returned to different parts of Canada in the different returns. And, you know, like Australia, um, Canada is a vast country and a very regionally diverse country. And, and so the first time I returned back from Korea, I was living in Montreal, which is a relatively, you know, multiculturally diverse space. Um, it's a French-Canadian space. And I had friends who were Korean who lived there. And so that was a unique experience. It, it was also the time that I was sort of newly in my reunion with my Korean family. And so they were calling me every day and maintaining those connections. I write about in the memoir that my Korean family comes to Montreal and spends some time with me, in fact. So so it was a different moment in our relationship and in and in my life with them. Um, the second time I returned from Korea, I returned to Winnipeg, which is where I live now, which is in the Canadian prairies. It, there's a different racial makeup here, let's just say. And so I, I don't see other Korean people um, often for months here. And so it's a very different experience. And that's not to say that Winnipeg's, you know, like a small town, but there are... Um, different communities of color that are more sort of 
present in my life here. Yeah. Is that to say that being in Montreal amidst that diversity made it a little bit easier? I think in some ways it did. And there was a, um, a different kind of openness to talk about race and ethnicity and culture in a place like Montreal and a place like Quebec. It's sort of more at the forefront of people's everyday conversations. Here, when I returned, um, it was wintertime. I had gone to Korea because of um, some illness in my Korean family. So it also was a different circumstance that you don't sort of return and then want to tell about these amazing experiences. So I was a little bit closed down when I returned the second time. Um, it was also, you know, almost 10 years later. So I was you know, at a different point in my life and had different responsibilities and was centering other people's experiences more than my own um, than was the case the first time around. In preparing for this episode, um, we revisited your beautiful beautiful preface, um, and we're wondering if you wouldn't mind reading it for our listeners. Yeah, no, of course. Thank you. You're, you're both too sweet. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So, so the preface to, um, to the book reads, This story, these stories are not all mine. Some of them, in fact, belong to no one at all but are the fantasies that seem to flower so naturally from the mouths of those of us who've grown lives out of half facts, wishful thinking, and outright lies, who pieced themselves together from the residue of lost records, from withheld or secreted records, whose orphanages and agencies have been evasively destroyed by fire and flood or by shame. We're told there's nothing left of the people or places or lives we might have had. We're told they, and our knowledge of them, do not belong to us. They never did. And so these stories are nothing special, only echoes of memories and alibis, but they're all that I have. You know, as a fellow Korean adoptee, which... You know, I shouldn't have to say on this podcast, but it feels weird to say, actually. Um, your preface actually reads to me almost like a kind of dedication uh, as opposed to a preface. I mean, if I think about it from another perspective, it could read as a bit of a caveat, right? Like, these stories are not all mine. Um, some fact don't belong to anyone at all. Um, and I was wondering, when you were writing the book, did you have a sense of writing it for or to or toward uh, transracial adoptees and, and adoptee communities? Yeah, thanks. It's an insightful question because you're right, the, per the perfunctory or the practical reason of the dead, or the preface in this way um, was legal <laughs> and it was, um, it was also connected to genre, right? And the ways that people expect a certain kind of story from um, nonfiction writers, from memoirists. So, so there was, that was what was in my mind, but I appreciate you being attuned to the idea of this story being kind of a love note to people that mostly I haven't met 
and people who likely I'll never meet, but who share experiences of being um, displaced kin in these ways. Um, I was thinking about other Korean adoptees while I was writing, but maybe not in the romantic sense that you're thinking <laughs> insofar <laughs> as I wasn't thinking, you know, this is going to be um, something that I can communicate to other adoptees how much I care about them, how valuable I think our various experiences are. It was more like, I'm pretty sure adoptees are going to be the only ones who are interested in reading this <laughs> at that point. Um, and, and that was certainly in my mind at the beginning as the project or as, as a manuscript sort of uh, flowered into what it became with a very different audience, I think, as its targeted marketing audience, I felt that some of those communications to fellow adopted Korean people had to be more subtext or between the lines. And, and I think that that's how we write to our kin, not being didactic and not putting all of our cards and all of our secrets on the table, but using those terms, hinting at those particular images that we know that our people are going to get and that other people can, you know, read and say, you know, that's a cute metaphor or whatever, but, but won't be in on the, on the joke or on the commentary. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this some. Um, I mean, you go all English prof on us, but <laughs> it kind of reminds me a little bit of a lot of the commentary on like a lot of the first queer novels, right? That even mm -hmm. the endings weren't, it was like there was an understanding that due to publishing constraint, those queer stories couldn't be told in certain ways. And so the ending perhaps, you know, wasn't a queer ending per se, but the right audiences would still feel like, yeah, this is this is right, or this is our story, or they would also understand like, yeah, they had to end it that way because, because to get it published, right? Yeah, this is a great analogy to make because this is how we actually um, feel community and intimacy in writing. It's not what's being told to us from the writer, but it's like that feeling of connection that like hits you like a sucker punch where you know that you, you belong in this conversation and other people maybe are bearing witness to it, but there's, there's a bit of a secret or there's something signified, um, a whisper between um, speaker and listener that, that makes you feel held on to, I think. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how you did that or how to do that in a craft sense, but um, I definitely got that sense in many moments in your memoir. I, I mean, sometimes it was like the way that you would describe um, a, a feeling um, or an experience that felt, that did feel very specific to like um, a Korean adopted experience. And then in, in other times it was like, I remember um, a part that I really loved you where you said you were speaking to an auditorium of students celebrating Asian Heritage Month, Month in Winnipeg. I don't know if people ask you about this like section all the time, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, never. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said that um, the fact that I became a teacher, a reader of Asian North American literature made sense. It was one of the only ways I could access the spaces and people I'd been denied, end quote. I'm sorry, I can't... Mm. I, I'm thinking about the way that like you read your own work and then I'm like hearing my own voice. 
<laughs> oh no, it's like it's not, not, not very like pretty and eloquent. <laughs> um, anyway, and then you describe, um, you know, as someone, a, a white man in the audience asking you a, a, about like your personal adoption experience ra- rather than I'm assuming about um, posing a question to you as a teacher or an academic. Yeah, I just, I mean, the experience is so relatable, but the way that you kind of describe it felt like like a little nod, I think, to, to say other Korean adopted people who could probably recount a whole bunch of experiences kind of like that. Yeah, no, thank you for this. I mean, it reminds me of the first question that we started this conversation off with, and that is being a spectacle and being on display and um, what is considered fair game, I guess. And when someone is presented to an audience in these ways, which we have been for the, at least for those of us who are transracially adopted, right? You're all, you're from the time you're a tiny little child um, and you go to the restaurant or you go to the grocery store, like you're presented as a spectacle in these ways. Yeah. There's maybe like a tightening, a familiar tightening in one's chest or um, a lump in one's throat that, that someone can relate to in these ways. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny that you should mention um, the tenor of voice when one reads. This is also a literary intimacy trick. Um, (laughs) I have a friend who's a writer and he tells me you need to drop your voice and speak with the vocal fry when you're reading because it forces the listener um, to lean in to you. Mm. (laughs) Oh, that makes sense. I've just given you all my secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, I feel like as as podcasters, we should try and like... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I was told I couldn't read my audio book because my voice was too too passive and too dull that I would put people asleep at the wheel. So it doesn't work necessarily in these contexts. That's so rude. Super rude. It's so special to hear the author's voice, though. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you would have yeah. been, I'm sure you would have read it beautifully. Yeah. Well, maybe it would be too long because I take so long to enunciate that it would be like 20 hours long and not tenable. Yeah. Oh, God. You recently very kindly facilitated a writing workshop for us. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. Oh, it was so good. Oh, it was, yeah, it was wonderful. Um, and th- the theme of that workshop was um, fact and fantasy in adopted creative nonfiction, which also kind of relates to, um, to the preface of your memoir. Could you um, expand on that a little bit for us, the idea that adoptees live between fact and fantasy? I appreciate the opportunity to talk more about this because I've been thinking about it more since that workshop. I I don't necessarily think that adoptees more than other people live and represent themselves in these realms between fact and fiction or fiction and nonfiction or whatever. But I think that adoptees offer us an example or leaders in collapsing some of our expectations and some of our boundaries around 
how experience is represented. Now, I mean, mm. in the obvious ways, um, adopted people, as well as other people who don't have, how can I say, uh, reliable uh, information about their origins, maybe, or something that happened to them at some point in their lives. Um, obviously, we always are experiencing new information coming towards us or changing information. The idea of fact is less tenable for some subjects, including adoptees. But what I really hope to uh, to see happening is adoptees being um, a catalyst or being one catalyst toward experimentation in writing and representation, toward um, loosening this understanding of what is fact as though that's something that exists or that truth is something that can exist in um, in a containable and graspable way. And, and I think that as adopted people, we were experts in navigating these things already. I mean, unfortunately and non-consensually, in most cases, we've become experts in these things. But that also means that we're galvanized to be creative leaders and genre breakers and, um, and exciting people at the forefront, changing what fact means. As a follow-up, as you were talking, I'm, I guess I'm thinking about how, so say like adoptees that are critical of adoption as, as a system, as an institution, you know, I'm not sure that they get told that what they say is false per se about mm-hmm. the way adoption works. But I'm wondering if, if there's any, like what the challenges are for adoptees who want to yeah, challenge this distinction between mm-hmm. fact and, and fantasy when adoptees are already not heard or looked over or, or kind of accused of, of um, being un- you know, ungrateful and therefore their emotions mm-hmm. are clouding their sense of what's right or what's real about mm-hmm. adoption. Um, that was just a jumble of words, but I don't know if you have <laughs> any kind of response to that or if you kind of get maybe where I'm going with that or... Yeah, I I understand you're asking about what happens when adoptees or people who are critical of the systemic and institutionalized ways that adoption is used as an oppressive settler colonial as well as like colonial colonial tool. Um, What happens when they're gaslighted, essentially, and told that what they're saying is not true or is false? yeah, I mean, I think that what what you're pointing to is absolutely correct. And that's that these ideas of fact and fiction are a moving target and they're a slippery target and they're often deployed by those who have the most power and those who are in positions to oppress others. And so... It's not that we should say, you know, um, there's no such thing as a false thing and there's no such thing as a true thing. Of course, as a nonfiction writer, I believe in um, the idea of truth, but I understand it to be subjective. Mm. But I think what I'm trying to get at is that we, we need to think about ways to challenge the use of fact and fiction as a way to silence us as well. So it, it's not necessarily 
a binary that things are true or not true fact or fiction. It's how can we push outside of these things and, and the ways that adoptees are gaslighted and told that their experiences are incorrect is one of the reasons I think that we need to move outside of these linear and constrained understandings of reality. Hmm. And I feel like that's an equally jumbled response. <laughs> I apologize. No, that's it's it's so interesting. And um and when you led that workshop for us, even the title, right, fact fact and fantasy, like I think it's interesting that you use, use the word fantasy and not fiction, because I think mm-hmm. it also captures a sense of like there's so much speculation, right, around mm-hmm. what we don't know and what we maybe will never know and can't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of leads to to our next question, which is about the, the idea of being an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And perhaps, you know, adoptees aren't necessarily like deliberately being unreliable. Mm-hmm. But that there are reasons such as, you know, information about our origins are lacking, um, or we get that information secondhand, um, and that they're prone to change. You, you talked about this in the workshop, but would love for you to rehash it for our listeners. Um, in, in what ways do you think that leaning into this unreliability holds promise for adoptee writers? Thank you for this question, because I feel like it's a way to maybe clarify what I was just speaking to as well. And that is that we can remove the ethic or the moralistic connection between goodness and reliability Mm. and badness and unreliability or um, which is to say that being unreliable doesn't necessarily need to be the horrible condemnation that it often is seen as in um, in narrative representations. And so I think that, as you say, this idea of leaning into, at the very least, we can think of maybe, or I, I think of representing my own experience as an adopted person as Maybe like a postmodern, oh, that's so gross to say that. Ew, sorry, I apologize. A postmodern experiment in um, someone who admits their unreliability for whatever reasons is fine with it, will still make you care about them, even as you know that they don't know their story and as they're relating it to you. You know, there's there's there are these dynamics of trust, and it's it's about um, craft and how that's established, as opposed to whether you should believe me or not, um, whether you do or why you do or not. I guess, mm. yeah. I think an unreliable narrator is also like a beautiful and valuable and valid perspective as well. Mm. That's not to say that people should be like outright, like slandering or being a libelous <laughs> or like telling lies on people or um, or misrepresenting things deliberately. I feel in myself that there's a difference between being deceptive in writing versus accepting that the typical avenues for storytelling or life telling maybe aren't available, but that's okay too. Um, In the workshop, you also uh, questioned another um, binary, I guess, um, that adopted concept of um, uh, 
like being in the fog and then coming out of the fog. Would you mind also you know, rehashing that a little bit for us on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the reason I was talking about that is not because I don't think that's a valuable you know, metaphor for thinking through these ideas of uh, thinking about one's subjectivity or awareness or, you um, I'm going to use another gross word, but like enlightenment or whatever. Um, but I, I, I worry that that particular framework is uh, teleological or linear, um, that it has this sort of point of origin and then this end result. But as we know, um, none of these things are sort of the traditional narrative arc. And so I'm, I'm not certain that just emerging out of something and then you're emerged and like that's the end is fully attending to the dips and dives and the, you know, nuances. And I, I worry that binary understandings of anything lead to excluding people mm-hmm. um, and run the risk of doing harm sometimes. Although I have to say for myself, just, just for myself personally, like about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago when I was suddenly uh, coming into, like just learning a lot about adoption as a system mm-hmm. and coming, you know, returning to Korea and um, doing all these things at once. It did feel like, I, I guess at the, at the time it was a, a helpful kind of <laughs> metaphor mm-hmm. to use because, mm-hmm. um, b- because it was shocking to me like how many things I had just literally I just had only barely thought about or confronted. I'm not trying to play devil's advocate or anything like that, but I'm just, I'm just saying like just for me, like for, for both of you, like did you also, I mean, at one point was it a useful image or relatable or, or not really? I mean, I think it still is useful. I'm not t- saying that it's, you know, an, a sort of terminology that we should throw away. Um, and I also remember distinctly moments of where, where I recognized that something in the narrative that I'd been told before, or the narratives I'd been told before were not lining up with my experience. Um, the, the reason I was talking about in the workshop is that it, it's not the fog that that I think we need to pay closer attention to, but it's the coming out of piece. And it's this sort of straight trajectory verb, I guess, that I think we, it, we deserve to have nuanced more. That it's not just like a single shot and then it's just like, okay, fog free, like... Um, I can see, I can see clearly now, um, or whatever the song is, um, that, um, what, what I think I was trying to communicate is that, that it isn't a linear experience. There will be like multiple, maybe moments of awareness, or there will be grayer moments of recognition that it's not necessarily just like, now I'm here and now I'm there kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that is also reflective of what we were talking about earlier. And that is that our experiences are fragmented and nonlinear. So it's interesting to me that we would use this linear metaphor 
to describe our experiences when already we know that there it, it's more picking up pieces of something and putting them together. Mm. <laughs> well, I feel like you've maybe <laughs> already answered this, but we have leads very nicely on to our next question, which is a very, very big one. Do you think an adoptee story can have resolution, you know, and or is there such a thing as resolution for adoptees' fragmented identities? Mm-hmm. I can talk from my own perspective, I guess, and my own experience. And that is that I don't feel that I have resolution if only because I'm still living and changing. And all of the life changes that one faces impacts what my reunion felt like to me, um, how I understand it to be. I think that if there's one thing that my memoir does, it's sort of like many other people's brilliant, brilliant writers' works reflects that um, the reunion isn't the narrative apex Mm -hmm. Um, for everyone's adoption experience or journey and that sometimes that is just the starting point in fact and so maybe when I went into my reunion I thought that that would be the resolution and that would give me all the answers I'd been searching for all this time but in fact it posed more questions and felt um, more disorienting Um, One of the ways I remember when I was selling the manuscript, one of the things that I said was that I didn't want to myself write an adoption story that was, here I am in childhood and leading up to a reunion or a non-reunion, depending on what um, someone's experience is. I wanted to write the equivalent of the day after Elizabeth and Darcy get married. So for any Jane Austen fans, we all know that it's like a million pages of lead up to these like, like unions at the end. And then it's like in the last paragraph, it's like, and then they got married, like the end. But we know like things are going down the next day between Elizabeth and Darcy or for the rest of their lives together that, um, that the union is the ignition for what's to come later, I guess. And so um, that's how I wanted to present it. But unbeknownst to me, all the Canadian publishers were like, um, we don't really know too much about these adoption narratives. So it was kind of a moot point. But I still, I still, I think, hung on to that piece um, or that desire, that structure. Um, yeah, I was curious whether... Um, yeah, there was like any pressure at all from publishers to be, yeah, to make the reunion like and, and like you know will she reunite? Will you know won't she? Um, and all the all the build up to that and like oh how did you prepare for the reunion and like you know what was your search process like? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was, but it, but it sounds like you like fortunately had some freedom to sh- to shape the narrative. Um, yeah, a bit more how you, you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. I work with an amazing editor who is so brilliant and and also so trusting, I think, of her writers that not once did she ask me to uh, change any political intentions behind mm-hmm. the text. Not once did she ask me to remove um, or sensationalize anything. 
so so I'm extremely fortunate that way. Now, when I was shopping for a U.S. publisher, um, <laughs> I was really surprised by the differences in the publishing worlds there. Um, the comment that my agent received most, well, t- she received two comments. One was, we already have an Asian adoption memoir. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and um, I love Nicole Chung, so I have no hard feelings. <laughs> She's amazing and brilliant. Um, but they also said she needs to reorder it so that it reads more journalistically, mm-hmm. um, which I feel is impossible for the story that I was telling. Um, it, it stayed with my own publisher. Mm. But also maybe they thought I sucked and like all of these things. Like that's also a valid opinion too. I don't want to be mis- like representing myself as some like victim to some like American publishing industry or something. It's not like that. Um, but, but it's just a different kind of writing style, a different audience. And what people are looking for, I think, was different in that market than in, um, in the Canadian scene where... Mm. I think they really celebrate experimentation um, in storytelling. So mm. it's lucky. Yeah, your your book really yeah retained that that sense of fragmentation, which I know yeah you you felt was really important part of part of the story and part of the way you wanted to tell it. And just like real quick going back to this this idea of whether or not there's resolution like mm-hmm. another thing that that I've been thinking about as as I dabble in creative writing is um it's always hard to know how to start the story right for those reasons that you said but also I'm really interested in how you end the story like you know, obviously you can keep writing memoirs, you know, like Jane Jong Trunker had, you know, the second one and, you know, so on and so forth that, that there is, yeah, there might not be resolution in this like existential sense. Right. But for publishing purposes, you have to, you have to cut it off somewhere. Right. So I'm, yeah, in really interested in how, how to end the book. Yeah. Can you talk us through the process of like figuring that out? Sure. Um, it's kind of embarrassing because I have a really hard time ending things. I am not a closer. I start a million crafts and I never <laughs> finish them. I have donated so much yarn. That's like a, a, like one quarter of an Afghan made. Um, so, so I really struggled with that. And the work that I did with my editor was around structuring. Um, I handed her sort of a pile of random vignettes and, and we talked a lot about structuring and how to organize it around a kind of narrative understanding for, for a reader. But I didn't know how to end it. To be honest, like it was more aesthetic, mm-hmm. the, the ways that I, I think about cutting off narrative than it actually is about like life and subjectivity. Um, maybe, well, maybe it's not noticeable. Sorry, I'm being obnoxious, but I tried to end the vignettes themselves um, with a kind of little bit of like an emotional jab sometimes, um, or a little bit of a statement of provocation. Mm -hmm. And I think narratively, um, I ended up doing the same thing. But it was also just like, it's time to go to revisions. Like you need to stop. <laughs> and um, the first draft didn't include the second return to Korea. So mm-hmm. that whole part was written afterwards. Um, 
Yeah, I. It was so long ago. I have a hard time remembering, <laughs> but I do know in my writing now. Still, like I'm a bad closer. I need someone to name my books and also someone to um, to tell me how to how, how to end it all. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, maybe is that an adoptee thing? Like being afraid to like put an end on something? I don't know. I'll just say, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to like pathologize or <laughs> a lot of anything, but I just like have the hardest time closing things. But then it's just like, okay, this is done. Like goodbye, never again, kind of thing. So. Yeah, I feel like for me, it's kind of either or, and like it's really fun that I'm oversharing. But like, I was talking to my partner yesterday about how like I'm too scared to end therapy. <laughs> with counselors yeah I find it so hard that I just like let it trail off and yeah Mm -hmm. I'm not good at ending that work and I find it so awkward and anyways yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely it's hard to be the one like to pull the trigger on like the severance of something Mm. like for some of us I think yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) let's see if that makes it into the final edit Um, We had another question. Um, We just kind of wanted to get a glimpse into your your day-to-day writing process. Do you remember what the experience of of writing your manuscript was like? So it's different than what my day-to-day writing experience is like now, um, which isn't day-to-day, first of all. Um, (laughs) And... (laughs) But I think that's fine. Like, Mm. I I hear some people say, you know, you need to write every day and like, blah, blah, blah. But I just feel that that's like extremely classist and ableist and like, you know, often um, sexist, often like racist, like all of these things, like the opportunity to sit down and like work on your writing every day is not equally afforded Mm. across the board. So that does not make someone a bad writer or um, an uncommitted writer, anything like that. But nowadays, I'm, you know, trying to find shreds of time to write between like this and that. So, so there's no consistency that way. When I was writing the memoir, however, I was on sabbatical and um, I was living in Northern California. So I didn't really know too many people. I didn't have a lot of um, social distractions that way I was supposed to be writing an academic monograph which I still haven't written um I'm never going to write it like (laughs) it's so boring I'm never doing that like you heard it here like once again like I'm never doing that um but (laughs) I had insomnia so I was living in in a house with some other people and this is probably also an overshare and it's not a read of them, but they felt like safe, not locking the doors and windows, but I don't feel safe in a situation with um, unlocked doors and windows. And and maybe, I mean, if you've read anything that I've written, you can understand why Um, I'm nervous about those things. I can't sleep. So I would stay up every night until after everyone went to sleep because I didn't want to insult them because I'd asked them several times to do it and then they didn't. And then I was, you know, I'm conflict averse. Um, and then I would go around and like lock, like some little elf, like <laughs> locking all the doors and windows. So I, I had like no sleep hygiene, of course, or sorry, that's also like a really problematic term. I, I was, I had inconsistent sleep habits. 
let's just say. And, um, and I had insomnia because of that. And so it was the first time, maybe since middle school, that I'd had time off because um, I was always doing like summer school and then like courses and here and there. It was the first time I had time off. It was the first time since my reunion, I had um, nothing to think about really. And these poems just sort of like came out in this way while I had insomnia um, and while I was uh, binge watching Frasier, um, which is like brilliantly written. So it's like a really good thing to look at when you're, when you're trying to think about plot. Um, but, but that's how it came about. And it came out as poems, um, little square poems. I'm really inspired by the novelist Kim Tui, who's a Vietnamese Canadian writer. Um, I was really inspired by the way she writes. Um, they looked like that. And, and then they were just passed off as um, a novel. And I was so naive that I was just like, oh yeah, I'm so experimental. I'm an experimental novelist. Ooh, I don't believe in narrative, but it was really just for lack of knowing what to do with all of these stories. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how it began. And that's what the writing was like. So it was in the middle of the night. It was in Palo Alto, where it was quite warm at that time of year. And uh, it was with Niles Crane talking in the background. <laughs> that was that was what it was. Yeah. And what's it been like having your memoir out in the world? It's been both um, a huge blessing. I've met like amazing people like yourselves. It's been really lovely and beyond that it's it's also in terms of uh being a writer it's this particular book has received like some attention like at least in my country and so it's been a blessing in those ways and offered many opportunities it's also made me um even more protective and nervous mm. than i had been in the past it's made me feel that the the distinction between like a performative outside self and an inside self even more and you know as fellow adaptees like we know full well like the ways that insides not matching outsides can create like uh, certain feelings let's just say or certain tensions within ourselves and so it, it's been um, a paradoxical journey but it's one that I wouldn't trade uh, but one that's made me differently cautious. Like, like, okay, so here's a weird example. When you meet someone for the first time, like say you're at a cocktail party or at an event for school or whatever, like a kid's play date or whatever, and you meet someone and you're trying to get to know them and you're like, oh yeah, what do you do or whatever? And then you find out afterwards that they have read some of the most intimate details of your life, that things that you didn't share with the people in your life because writing just felt like a safer avenue for those things things that shocked the people that were in your life it makes it complicated to make new friends or to um, you know um to navigate those trust and boundary and bonding and attachment things that we all know very well are things that some adopted people um, navigate differently than non-adopted people. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, so it's made me, um, it's made me even more cautious in some ways. Mm. Yeah. 
one final question. I'm sure you get asked this quite a lot. <laughs> Actually, I think we asked you in, the, in our own workshop already, but um, do you have any advice or tips for um, other transracial adoptees who may be, you know, writing a memoir or creative nonfiction or, or even just, you know, experimenting with, with writing for themselves about their um, adoption experiences? You know, you're right. I do get asked this often and <laughs> I give different answers. I think at different, uh. depending on how I'm feeling on that particular day. Right? Um, sometimes when I'm feeling particularly jaded, I'm like, don't do it. Like run away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't genuinely mean that. Um, I think the advice I would give anyone who wants to write memoir, um, but especially adopted people or formerly fostered people, is um, to be very aware of surveillance because we're familiar with what it feels like. And I feel like it's become normalized in our experiences. Be aware of what it, what it means to be surveyed um, and be aware of the boundaries that one deserves and to be firm and generous with yourself about what those boundaries mean and that saying no to something doesn't mean that an opportunity is going to pass you by or that they're going to move on to the next person if they do like it seems like a pretty like crappy and mean like journalist or whatever opportunity but um but to preserve pieces of oneself because just because you tell a little bit about yourself doesn't mean you have to tell everything mm. um and that just because you told a little bit about yourself in one avenue or one day doesn't mean that you have to offer that same piece of yourself forever um it's basic consent rules i guess to remember the importance of offering ourselves um, the right to say no and to be inconsistent, I think, about saying no, depending on how you're feeling in a particular moment or the energy you're getting off of someone, mm -hmm. um, you can say no. And also, don't do things for free. <laughs> um, certainly, there are um, nonprofit situations or this or that, but... Invoice and offer it in kind so that um, you understand your value. So, so many adoptees, as you mentioned at the very beginning, are expected to tell their story for free um, when anyone like sort of snaps their fingers. But what, if you choose to do something um, in kind or like not to charge or whatever, it's still important to let people know what your value is mm -hmm. um, and to be uh, unapologetic about that because enough capital has been exchanged around us yeah sorry that sounds super mm. capitalist but you know sorry can i just clarify yeah did you say so if you do ag agree um to do something for free to invoice in kind mm -hmm. what does that mean mm -hmm. I, I think that just means is that a canadian term no probably sorry. not no i think it's i just want to double check it yeah so, so say I was doing a presentation um, for a charitable organization that I really supported that couldn't afford to pay uh, my union fees even, right? So, so in Canada, writers are unionized, um, can't even afford to pay that. Um, I would still send an invoice and say, I'm doing this in kind, um, which means I'm doing this as a charitable donation to your organization. 
Um, and it's not for tax reasons. That's not why I'm doing it. It's it's a self-worth reason. And because then maybe the next time if that organization does get a grant or has some funds or whatever, um, they'll be reminded that uh, they should compensate artists. So. I love that. I love that because um, <laughs> like not as a, a writer or like um, a famous person, but like just, you know, yeah. in the adoptee community, right. I had, like over the, you know, last decade or so you get asked to do things or like, you know, just mm-hmm. speak at things or events and, and whatnot. And it's like, and often share quite personal things yeah, for free because they're like, oh, this is this will help other people, or this will, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think the the option of invoicing in kind is kind of, um, you know, so it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You don't have to, you know, you you, you can you have options basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you have that. agency, mm. like you can choose like what you spend your time to do. Um, I think, but we're often like compelled or impelled to do things um out of the softness of our heart and especially for our own communities that we Mm. love and that we don't want to turn our backs on but this is a way that everyone gets acknowledged as like a subject and like a participant in this that's not um invisibilizing Mm. like the emotional work that you're describing or like the actual like cerebral work or whatever that's happening yeah oh man this just became like a um like business (laughs) (laughs) I, i love that it's um perhaps kind of like unexpectedly even though we did write like plan the questions it's kind of like this emergent theme of consent which i think mm. is such a like a powerful way to frame you know all those like experiences from childhood up till now and telling stories and and writing and it's it's not a a term that i have really like linked much to adoption and so mm. yeah thank you so much for talking through how you think about consent with regard to to adoptee experiences um and then also i guess like this this end discussions really nicely become about knowing one's own value. And yeah, I just think that's like a really beautiful way to end um, uh, the, the, the interview. Um, again, kind of unexpected way, but, um, but yeah, that's such an important um, ritual or not a ritual, like a practice, right, to, to, to start doing. And that's definitely something that Hannah and I will hopefully put into practice because I think it's, it's a really powerful way of um, mm-hmm. starting to like, yeah, see your own worth and 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 time and energy so yeah thanks for that because i mean the whole thing of adoption is you know how much do you cost but you're not valuable like what is exchanged behind your back without your consent like what kind of migrations and movements and relocations and losses we experience while other people are um other industries and individuals are financially benefiting are sort of um self-narrating benefiting so even in these small ways we can sort of i think try to remind people that we deserve consent Mm. um and that we deserve recognition um even if even if capital's not changing hands and i guess that's what i'm trying to get at that we don't need to be necessarily capitalistic all the time Mm. um 
but but ideologically we're still valuable thank you so much jenny oh actually we have we have a final final question just wondering what you're working on at the moment um what project or projects? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm working on two novels oh, right wow. now. One is co-authored with another Asian-Canadian writer, a non-adoptee. It's um, an upmarket. So it's somewhere between um, pop literature and literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is a uh, contemporary novel. Um, when I say contemporary, I mean like the style. It's, it's set in 2003 in Korea mostly and it's it's a historical fiction and in both cases there are how can i say the fingerprints of adoption Mm. but they're not at the core of the text and this is kind of important to me also is i want to write about adoption but i also want to write about the ways that it's a peripheral experience and effect that impacts people as well that yes for those of us who are adopted people or formerly fostered people and whatnot like this is like the core to our identity but it's important I think for people to recognize that even if their subjectivity isn't that like there are specters of adoption like not far in the peripheries of their experiences Mm. That sounds so cool. Um, well, Hannah and I can add it to our wish list, but maybe um, sometime in the future we could we could have you back and, and hear more about that because those sound like such interesting yeah. projects. And um, I can't even imagine how one goes about co-authoring a, a novel. <laughs> but so be, yeah, <laughs> very yeah, kind of intrigued by that. Too. Yeah. It's really wacky because my co-author is like um, a satirical writer and a humorous writer. And I like, I just make everyone cry, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> and so it's really um, a juxtaposition of styles. But I really lean on her because she's very um, narratively and character driven. And I'm very like image and word driven. So it's a good coupling, I think. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, we'll look out for it. Can't wait. Thank you. We'd like to thank the Overseas Koreans Foundation for supporting Jenny's recent writing workshop for us and this podcast episode. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast or we're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 